Uh, welcome to the, 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 I'm not sure if this is a History Ireland Head School, if it qualifies. It's kind of a, a stripped down History Ireland Head School, but it's our uh, contribution to the um, Dublin Book Festival. Uh, I'm your, your host here, Tommy Graham, editor of History Ireland. I, I usually use my introduction to, to plug uh, the magazine, but that's not what I'm here for. Uh, we're here to plug the, the books by the, by the two authors we have here. So we're, we're, we're meeting De Valera and Michael Collins. Now, the, the, the two gentlemen themselves couldn't be here, but we have their <laughs> representatives on earth, uh, we might say. Uh, uh, David McCullough. Uh, of course, David is usually on the, on the other side of the microphone, so this will be a new experience for you, David. Uh, author of uh, De Valera, Volume 1, Rise, 1882-1932, which is published by Gill. And on my right, uh, who needs no introduction to History Iron readers, Joe Connell, who, who does our, uh, that r our regular inside back page piece, for which he's paid a fortune, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, Joe Connell's uh, book is Michael Collins' Dublin, 1916 uh, to 1922, and that's published by Wardwell Books. And of course, both books are available here, and you know, they will be signed in triplicate and necessary uh, by our authors, if you ask them nicely. Uh, listen, I, I want to start with the same question to both of you. Um, maybe, David, I'll start with you. Um, why did you write this book? What, what was wrong with the books that were out there already? Uh, that's a lovely question to start with. <laughs> uh, nothing in particular. I, uh, the short answer why I wrote the book was I was asked to by Gail, and I thought it was a terrible idea. Uh, six years later, I'm not sure that it wasn't a terrible idea, but... Um, I was persuaded that there was room for a new book that a lot of the books about De Valera, not all of them, but many of them are either hagiography or demonology. And there was room perhaps for uh, a more um, sort of fair assessment, even handed assessment. So that's what I aim to do. And also uh, to go back to the original sources, because a lot of what happens with, particularly with De Valera, is something gets written down in a book which may or may not be correct, and then it gets repeated and repeated and repeated until it's accepted uh, as gospel. So the idea was to A, be even handed, B, go back to the original sources and try and clear away any of the confusion. Because sometimes with um, quotes that are taken from historical figures out of context, maybe you don't get the full meaning of them. So that was the idea. Whether I succeeded or not is for others, of course. But just on sources, I, I, I would have assumed that any source to do it, Dev, would be well tilled back and forth. Well, it, yeah, up to a point, Lord Copper. Um, the, the main source is his own papers up in UCD archives, which are incredibly voluminous and took literally years to go through. And I don't think anybody has been through every single bit of it uh, in perhaps as much detail. And there was lot, plenty of new material in there that I hadn't seen published anywhere. So from that point of view, it was worth doing. Is there a problem there with that archive in the sense that that's Dev's archive? Yes. Like, is that a contaminated archive from the get-go? It could be in that anything that he didn't want, uh, anything that he thought reflected badly on him, you would imagine wouldn't be included. But there's plenty of stuff in there that does reflect badly on him, or at least reflects aspects of his personality that he wouldn't particularly want mm. poured mm. over by historians 100 years later, and particularly thinking about his family background, which we'll probably discuss in a moment. You know, there is plenty of material there. And the other thing is, you can frequently cross-reference, like if he has a correspondence with somebody, you know, their papers might be somewhere else, you can cross-reference and find out, and sometimes it's quite telling if you find out something that wasn't preserved in De Valera's right. archives, but is preserved somewhere else, it might give you more of an insight. So you're, you're running the, the, the mash to the, the worm again, but yes. what you're saying, there's more, and there's probably more of it for, for people coming after you as well. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. yeah. Joe, can I ask you the same question? Um, why did you write this particular book? Because it's a particular... Um, I mean, maybe, maybe you can explain. You're, 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 you're uniting kind of Collins with the geography of Dublin, basically. Yeah, the formatting is different. It's not, not strictly a prose book. Uh, probably 20 years ago when I came to Ireland, I, I had had a, an experience or had the military experience from years before, and I looked around Dublin and I thought of it as just a battleground. 
the kind of thing that you might look on as Waterloo or, or Gettysburg or something like this. And I was trying to look for places and uh, books, et cetera, to tell me what had happened and where and who did it. And I couldn't find him. So I started com uh, compiling a database. And, and all the books that I've done since are really of that kind of a format. And over the years, people would uh, ask me, just as, as, as they asked David, is it really true my granny lived next door here? Or is it really true that this is where my, one of Michael Collins' offices were? Or is it really true that this is where Bloody Sunday happened? Uh, let me just give you one quick answer. Uh, I'm sure you all know Shane Mock-Tomas. Uh, unfortunately, rest in peace. He died a couple of years ago. He was using one of the books, and he went around to one of the houses that was in there on Bloody Sunday, and a lady was out trimming her garden. And uh, he went up to her and he said, uh, is this such and such? She said, yes, this is that address. And he said, do you know this is one of the places over there on Bloody Sunday? And this lady just looked at him and says, that damn book. Walks inside the house and didn't come back. <laughs> So the fact of the matter is, is that what you're looking for is, is an ability to take a look at Dublin and learn history by learning the city itself. And as you drive to work or take the bus to work, you're, you're passing so many things that are very important in, in Irish history and certainly in Collins' history as well. No, but you, know, you see, what you did seems to me, it, 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 you started with a very simple premise, you know, to, to plot the place associated with Collins. But by doing that, then, you actually you actually explain how Collins operated. You know, so it, it, it may not have been your intention, but... In fact, what you've done is you've, you've, you've added to the whole uh, you know, view of Collins as, as a, an intelligence operator. Collins was, was brilliant, and, and Collins was everywhere. There are, there are hundreds and hundreds of, of, of addresses listed and that sort of thing. They're all separated by a postal code. But Collins was amazing, and, and if you just walk up and down, uh, how many times have you walked up and down O'Connell Street from, from Bachelor's Walk up to what is now uh, Parnell Square, Redland Square? Collins probably walked that a couple thousand times, and each time he did, he had a purpose. And each time he did, he went up there and probably found a new pub, probably found somebody else, had to meet with somebody, exchange some intelligence, learn some intelligence, pass it around. And that's the way the book is set up, so that you can go around Dublin and find out exactly how, how involved he was throughout the entire city of Dublin. And there is an appendix that gives addresses outside of Dublin as well, going to London and everything. But it, it gives you an opportunity to take a look at the city. And one of the things I've said so many times before is people don't live history, they live their lives. So just as you were getting in the bus, going someplace, going to work, so were the other individuals as well, and so, so was Collins. He was simply getting on a bus, taking his bicycle, going someplace and doing his job. Mm -hmm. Now, before I move on to the two uh, characters themselves, just want to point out to the audience the format of this. Obviously, we, I'll be chatting with the two authors here, but if anybody wants to come in at any stage, we won't just leave this to the end, but if you have any question or contribution, just put your hand up and uh, we'll, we'll pitch it at uh, the, the two authors here beside me. So, you, you, you know, you, you have to do a little bit of work here. It is, it is a school, after all. Um, now, Joe, getting back to, or sorry, David, um, without getting too Freudian about this, right, the, the question of de Valera's family background, I mean, is, is, is fascinating. I mean, where did the name come from? Well, his, his mother... His father, obviously. His father, well, <laughs> yeah, his, his mother... This is very interesting because De Valera was, uh, obsessed is probably too strong a word for it, but De Valera was very interested in his family history. He was very interested in finding out more about his father, of, we, of whom he knew very little. And he was particularly interested in trying to find evidence of his parents' marriage because that evidence never appeared. Now, it may be that his parents were married, as his mother said. It may be that they weren't. Um, it doesn't really matter to us, but the point is it affected him. He was very concerned about it. Her story was that uh, she emigrated to... Um, uh, New York in, 19, in 1879. Her story was that in, she met a, a Spaniard called Juan de Valera. They married in 1881. Uh, Eamon was born in 1882. A couple of years later, her husband suffered from poor health, went west for the sake of his uh, health to the Rockies, Denver, and died there. 
Uh, that's her story. Conveniently. Conveniently. Uh, that's her story. The problem is that there's no evidence of the mar marriage. She right. uh, described the church where it took place, and there's no record of it there. There's no record of the wedding in any other church in the area in New Jersey or in New York City. There's no reference to Juan de Valera in the 1880 US census. There's no reference to him anywhere else that any genealogist has been able to find. There's no record of his death. She said he died in Denver, unless it was Minnesota or possibly New Mexico. So there is this, this question. That's a lot mark. of gaps, though. I mean, you know, it's a lot of gaps, but then yeah. again, you know, Denver in, in the 1880s, it was the Wild West, so, you know. Yeah, but, I was going to say that the record keeping, American record keeping is not brilliant, is it? I mean, it's a general thing. Well, there's a lot of gaps. Yeah, there, there, yeah, are, there are a lot yeah. of gaps there. Uh, and now, at one stage, De Valera's cousin went out, was working in New Mexico, and he spent time going around graveyards and looking for records. Now, the fact that no record exists doesn't mean that yeah. De Valera, yeah. Juan De Valera, didn't exist, Vivian De Valera didn't exist, but it, did, it does raise questions, and those questions, I think, affected De Valera in, in some ways. Uh, he was always... Um, looking for an identity that he obviously didn't get. Uh, after the rise, and he wrote to his mother looking for more details about his father, he said, in international law, am I American, am I Spanish, what am I? And what did she say? Uh, she told him very little uh, that was of any use to him. And at one point she wrote to him, he, he kept asking these questions, and at one point she wrote to him and said, oh, I'll, I'll give you some details about your father. If I contradict anything I said earlier, it's because I wasn't very sure of it or because I'd forgotten. <laughs> So I, I, Make so, of that what you will. Okay, so I mean, the, 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 the best of the worst we can say is he, he could have been illegitimate. Well, he might have been, and, and you know, that, that doesn't yeah. affect, our, that doesn't affect our, our, our judgments of him, uh, our assessment of him. The point is that it affected his assessment of yeah, his own yeah. identity and raised question marks. But could, could we say then that that, that, might, that might explain for his conservative family values, you know, that, that there's a, def a defensiveness about his own situation? Uh, I think it probably explains why he was so enth enthusiastic in adopting the identity of Irish nationalism and adopting the language. And right. put it. Now, the other aspect of it, of course, is that after his father's death, supposed death, whatever you want to call it, uh, his mother sent him back to Ireland to be raised by her mother, his granny, in brewery in County Limerick. And... <laughs> You know, in the Constitution, uh, there's the thing about uh, women shall not be forced to work outside of the home due to economic ne uh, necessity. And I don't think it takes a huge leap to wonder whether that was uh, an influence on his decision to include that in the Constitution. So why was he, by the way, for, just before on, on his background, of course, it, he did end up with this fantastically exotic name. Yes, which, uh, which some people... Question, would, he have, would he have become a, a successful politician yeah, without was, such it, a... If he was called Ned, Ned Cowell. Right. Probably not. Or David McCullough. Or David McCullough. Or Tommy Graham. Or Tommy Graham. Right. Even, right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so why, why was he sent home then, right? I mean, I mean, this is, I mean, this is, this is a regular thing, I think, for people of a certain generation being fostered out to other members of the family. Yeah, so it's it, not it unusual. Yeah, it wouldn't have been that unusual. Um, well, his mother had to go back to work. Now, she had a... Uh, Staying, being looked after by a woman from her, her own home place while she, wor she worked as a, a governess herself. So that was an arrangement which seemed to be work, but she, she decided it was better to send him home. Now, as it happened, her brother, Edward, who was in America as well, had to go back to Ireland, so he was going. Hmm. The child was obviously, um, it would be probably harsh to say an encumbrance, but certainly right. was, was causing her problems. So, you know, it was convenient to do that. And did she... Did she get to see him later or did she yeah, come home? She, well, she came home uh, when he was about five just before she got married again and she came home then about uh, when he was in his early 20s and um, at that stage she, she suggested to him that maybe he, he could come to the United States with her but at that stage he'd, he'd already started building his life and the, when he went to America during the War of Independence the, he arrived in, uh, on, on the ship in New York Harbour and he sent a note out to Harry Boland 
and he said, uh, you'll be a bit surprised to discover that I've arrived here, which was uh, a little bit of an understatement because Boland had been sent as the Irish representative of the States and suddenly the boss arrives two weeks later. But anyway, he said, the first thing I want, the first thing he said is, I'm very anxious to go to Rochester. And Rochester, New York was where his mother was living. So the first thing he wanted to do when he was in the States was go and see Mammy. And what was his relation with her like? I mean, uh, he, he, I mean, they kept up a correspondence, which to me seems quite stiff. Um, you know, they, 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 they couldn't be particularly close. And at one point he wrote to her um, when he was in his early 20s and he said, uh, you, you will find it strange, mother, but any time I hear other people talking about their mothers, I feel more or less an orphan. Right, so, ooh, that's, yeah. Now, you, you wouldn't want to be too Freudian about it. You wouldn't want to read too much into it. As you say, <laughs> th- 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 this was not that unusual an arrangement, but I think it had its effect. And what about, what about his relationship then with his, his, his grandmother, his grandmother? Very close, very affectionate relationship with his grandmother. She died when he was um, 12, I think. 12 going on 13. And pretty, what's that's pretty, that's, you know, yeah, what, three, you know, basically yeah. orphaned at three. Yes, and orphaned again. Yeah. Orphaned again at yeah. 12. Yeah. So he was left then in the care of his, of his uncle Pat, who seems to have been quite, a, quite a, a, a generous and decent man, but quite stern, as would have been the, hmm. the norm hmm. at the time. And also quite keen on getting the young fella to work around the farm and all the rest of it. And the young fella had different ideas. The young fella was not. He, he wrote one time about a friend who had um, gone off to become a, trained to become a shop assistant in... Um, in Limerick City, and uh, De Valera heard this while he was digging potatoes, and he thought, this is, what is ahead of me, digging potatoes? But obviously, the determination and the self-belief and the drive that he had yeah. uh, allowed him to escape Rory through, the, through education. So it, it, how big of a holding did they have, the, the grandparents? What size uh, was uh, Half an acre. Uh, labourer's cottage. Oh, it's, just, it's tiny. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you can see—I don't know whether you've ever been to Burry, yeah. but it's, uh, you can go and visit the homestead. It's, right, it's, right. You know, it's well, well worth a visit. But he—he grew up in poverty. Would probably be a bit, bit strong, but certainly very poor circumstances. If you look at the valuation of land, the size of holdings in, in County Limerick at the time, uh, they would have been in the bottom ten percent. Right. So, for him to get to Blackrock College was a huge step up. And that was a, a scholarship, I presume. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Joe, we're just moving on to you now. This is a Big contrast then with, with Collins's family background, which my impressions are much warmer. <laughs> if there's a 180 degree contrast, it would be this one between Collins and, and De Valera, really, in the sense that Collins grew up in a large family. He was the eighth child. He was the youngest of the eight children. His father was uh, 75 years old when he was born. He was quite old when, when they got married. Collins was the third son. He was absolutely idolized by his sisters. His sister loved him. They took him everywhere. And, and he, the sisters claimed that the, the, the term the big fella came from them. We all think maybe it came from Frankok and he was a little bit too big for his britches at that point. But the sisters claim it came from them because he was always trying to do things uh, that were beyond his abilities. He would always pick the biggest uh, uh, bucket of potatoes to take back to the house or something like this and struggle with it. But he was very, very loved there. His grandmother, too, lived in the house with his mother and, and father. His father died when he was, I think, six years old. On his deathbed, his father said something like, take care of Michael, he'll do great things for Ireland. His father was a, a self-educated man. Uh, he was very, very much of a mathematician. He could speak Greek and, and read Greek and Latin and that sort of thing. And Michael learned those as a child. He went to school. And he was, he was very, very educated in, in the way that country boys at that time would have been educated. Uh, his sisters took care of him then. He moved to London. I'll skip ahead and then I'll skip back for a second. He moved to London, lived with his sister Joanna for about nine years in London. And she really took care of him there. And she also moved him along and said, okay, you have to go to the theater. You have to, to learn to go to plays. You have to learn all this sort of thing. So in fact, she really established in him a love of, of a different kind of a, of a world than he would have ever seen in Clonakilty in, in West Cork. 
his other, remember too that the very day he died, he saw his brother uh, Johnny in, in the pub there. Uh, that he had a, a pint with him the very, probably no more than a couple of hours before he was killed. And just a couple days before that, one of his sisters who became uh, Sister Celestine had written him a, Chris, a, a birthday card, and he wrote back to her and said, thank you very much, you're the only one who remembered. So from the very beginning until the very, very last days of his life, he has his family looking over him, family that he can see, family he can touch, talk to, write to, and all that sort of a thing. He had Nancy O'Brien, who was one of his cousins who worked in the post office, as one of his best spies, and that sort of thing. And a great, large, loving family, which I think had effect on it in so many ways. He, he, it, he had women who worked for him, who loved him. He knew the, the values of women. He never put them aside. He used them very, very much. So it was an entirely different kind of a background than, than De Valera would have ever had. And it, it, it's, you can see it in, in his later life, just how much it had an effect on him in that way. Now, it, 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 Michael Collins' uh, educational trajectory was not quite as spectacular as Dev's. Like, see, Dev get, gets a, a scholarship, goes to Black Rock. Uh, Michael Collins's route is a little bit more modest, is it not? I mean, he ends up in the, the post office in London. Well, it depends on how you, it depends on if you, if you look at, what, did his education fit him for his final job? And I would suggest to you it did from the very first day, because there was a teacher in the, in the Lissavard school named Dennis Lyons, who was an IRB man, and he inculcated Collins from a very, very young age in Irish history and in, in Athenians and that sort of thing. His father was an IRB man. The, the uh, blacksmith, which would have been a huge person in the town of, like that, was named James Santry. He was an IRB man. So his education Education, yes, he learned he learned to read and write and all the things that everybody else did far far less than De Valera would have done. But in terms of preparing him for his role way down the life, he was very well prepared from the very beginning. No, but would, would Collins have had any uh, notions about going to college, like for example? No, as a matter, well, he, yeah. he did go to King's College in London when he was there with his sister. But he took he took specific things. His sister was very instrumental. Joanna Henney was very instrumental in trying to tell him where to go. He took, for example, creative writing. He took public speaking. He took courses in law things like this. So he was trying to prepare himself. I don't think he had any intent to prepare himself for anything specific. Mm -hmm. He was simply trying to broaden his education and fit into the world as best he could. One thing I want to point out about that, yes, when he was in London, he worked for Horn and Company. Then he worked for the uh, Board of Trade. Then he went to work for uh, Morgan Guarantee Trust. And people think very often, especially when they talk about the, the end of his life, what would he have done as a minister of finance? How, how involved would he have been in economics? I think that's really skipping a step. Uh, Michael Collins was, he was in, uh, a boy clerk at the post office. He was in charge of clerks uh, at Morgan Guarantee Trust. He was simply a runner uh, for, for the Board of Trade. He was not exactly educated at the London School of Economics by any means. So I think when we try and impart that kind of a concept to Michael Collins and say, here is who he was and what he would have been and where he would have gone, I think that's our interpretation. I don't think that that's the correct one to make. Can I just draw a parallel, David, just here? You were talking about uh, the fact that De Valera was you know, born in New York, um, wasn't born here, that that sharpened up his sense of, of nationalism. Mm. Could you say the same thing with Collins when he goes to London? Because it, it strikes me that if you look at 1916, for example, the number of expats who are involved, it seems to be part of the, the, the mix yeah. uh, of, of being the other, being somewhere else, either well, physically or, or, yeah. or well, if you look, I mean, if you look at extreme nationalists or advanced nationalists uh, who had... One or more non-Irish parents, you know, Patrick Pierce, yeah, Colin yeah, Brilla, yeah. uh, Maud Gahn, you know, people yeah. like that, and, and Eamon de Valera, obviously. One thing Joe was saying there that, that, that I thought, thought was particularly interesting about 
the whole IRB ethos that, uh, that Collins was exposed to from a very early age. The same would not have been true at all. Yeah, I was going to say, that he, he never remembered the IRB. No, well, he, he, he was uh, briefly around the time of the rising because he found out some of his company commanders were members of the IRB and they knew more about what was going on than okay, he did. Okay. So yeah, he yeah. had been invited to join. He had declined because he, he claimed to have religious scruples about um, uh, joining an oath-bound society. But for that particular purpose, mm. he joined because he, he, he didn't want to be cut out of the chain of command, quite, quite rightly, uh, as it happens. But in terms of the IRB, I mean, De Valera wasn't politically involved uh, or politically interested until he was in his 20s, uh, until he, and he, his entry into politics was through the Gaelic League, first of all, and he only entered the Gaelic League because there was pressure on teachers to learn Irish at the time. His background would have been absolutely standard constitutional nationalist. His uncle used to read the Freeman's Journal out uh, and all that sort of stuff. They read, read O'Granny's History of Ireland. Um, so... It was, it was not the revolutionary milieu So there's contrast all. there with yeah, Collins. I think, I think it's very yeah, important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's absolutely... Again, Collins had that idea. Those ideas were imparted to him, not only in the home, in the place where he hung out after school, in the blacksmith shop, then he goes to school and he gets there. He goes to London, he gets sworn to the IRB himself, actually uh, Sam McGuire, that's Sam McGuire, swore him in, in, in London. That's how he came to that. He did join the uh, Gaelic Athletic League and the GAA as well, but to him, I think those were... Uh, he, his view of London was, this is the London Irish. We have our group here of Irish in London, and we all communicate together, and he became involved in Gaelic games there. And when did he come back to Ireland then, Collins? I mean, he was here for the Rising, obviously, but yes. when, when did he come back? He came back a couple of times. He came back, well, he came back for a, a funeral. He came back in, in 1912. He came back in 1914. He was actually going to go to the United States in 1914. He was going to go to work. His brother was a, a policeman in, in Chicago. He had a job set up for, for Collins at the time. And he was going to go, and, and, and he came back here, and he talked to Tom Clark, and he talked to Sean McDermott, and they said, we think we're going to have something going for you next year. Uh, just relax and be there. He actually left uh, London on uh, January 15th of 1916, which is the very day that conscription was going to be applied, because he was afraid if he didn't. But he okay. didn't leave alone. He left with an awful lot of the people, again, who were there in, in this group. One of the things about Collins is Collins was a great businessman. I, 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 I liken him to a modern-day CEO. He was always trying to do things in this way. He, he had gone to his, his boss and said, I'm going to, uh, to Ireland to join the army. And the boss was um, impressed, confused, said, that's really wonderful, and gave him an extra month's salary and said, that's great. So Collins basically took the money, transferred that into gold, and gave it to Sean, McBur Sean McDermott when he came back, and he joined the different army. <laughs> and so that basically is how he came back here at, at the start, right before the rising. Now, is there, is, is, I mean, this is one in, in this exercise where their the, the activity is very similar at this stage, right? They, they both joined the Gaelic League. Uh, they both joined the Irish Volunteers. So, I mean, it, it, this is pretty standard formation for the Irish nationalists at that time. Yeah, I would have thought so. Now, you have to bear in mind that there was the split in the Volunteers then between... When, um, uh, Redmond uh, took it over in the National Volunteers. So the Irish Volunteers were very much a minority. Um, so from that point of view, their, their formation was standard for that kind of Irish nationalist, but that mm. kind of Irish nationalist was a minority. Then the IRB were, were a minority of, the, of that minority. But um, the interesting thing about De Valera and the Volunteers is uh, in 1913, when the Volunteers were formed at the Rotunda, he was sitting in the crowd, and in front of him was Father Eugene Sheehy, the former parish priest of Bury, who was a well-known uh, Irish nationalist. And De Valera was sitting there, and he was too timid to say hello to 
Father Sheehy. He, you know, he was a complete non-entity in terms of, of, uh, of Irish nationalism. But because he applied himself and was diligent and intelligent and well-educated and all the rest of it, he rose through the ranks and he eventually became Commandant of the 3rd Battalion. So he would have been a much more senior figure than Collins uh, at this time. Mm. And I suppose he, he was that little bit older, that eight years older or so. And what, what determined who became a Commandant in 1916? I mean, do we know? I mean, well, probably the fact that uh, Thomas McDonough liked, got on well with him. He was he was the commander of the of the Dublin Brigade, uh, and he uh, helped him along. As did Patrick Pierce, who was obviously impressed by him as well. So I think it was uh, people were were chosen for their character, for their leadership qualities. And interestingly, when De Valera was appointed commandant, he wasn't a member of the IRB at that stage. The only one of the commandants who wasn't. Just I, I just want to come back to De Valera's performance in 1916, but I just want to go to Joe first. Okay, Collins comes back here then in, in January 1916. Um, so how, how does he, you know, how come he doesn't go back to Cork? How come he's, he's, he's I mean, it's presumably he, he's told to stay in Dublin because that's where the action's going to be. He was, and he did have sort of a part-time job here as an accountant, but basically he went to work for Joseph for the Plunkett family. He was working for them as an, as an accountant and that sort of a thing. And he was going out back and forth to Kimmage where the uh, 4th Battalion under Eamon Kent was and the Plunkett's were there. Uh, Mrs. Plunkett, uh, Countess Plunkett, Josephine Plunkett actually owned that. She had money in her own right and she was trying to develop that and that's why they used that. Interestingly enough about, about Collins, he was, he was made a captain at the time, and, and again, I don't know these things, uh, coming from a military situation, it wasn't, this wasn't uh, meritocracy, it was sort of somebody would pick you and say you're a captain, you're, you're an ADC or something title. else, yeah, right. but he, he didn't go through any kind of a process to get there, but going out to Kimmage, uh, he wasn't really very well liked. Most of the people in Kimmage were people from London who had escaped, or I guess you'd say escaped from, from England, trying to avoid conscription or that sort of a thing. He was not very well liked. Uh, Joe Good, for example, said that, that he was very arrogant and he came out there and, and the people didn't like him. But he's a cork, you know, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, has, it gets better, it gets better, okay? It does get better because he always was quite vain. And he was the only one who had a uniform. And they didn't like that. And they, they, they would think that this is not right. Maybe they had a bandolier or an armband or something else. We didn't like that. It even gets better still because the uh, Philomena Plunkett said, I don't like him. He's a country bumpkin. He's got no class at all. Now, is this a reflection on Collins or is this a little bit of a reflection on snobbery itself? Kind of hard to tell, but it's there anyway. So he wasn't very well liked in Kimmage before the Rising. And so, uh, so you're saying Collins was a captain then, but in reality, where, where was he in the, in the, in the command structure? Was he, he was not in command structure. He had nothing to do with the planning of it. He had nothing to do with anything except the fact that he was the aide-de-camp to Joseph Plunkett. Okay. And as a result of that, uh, he and, and William Brennan Whitmore kind of were alongside Plunkett and taking him back and forth. Plunkett was in and out of uh, nursing homes and that sort of thing, rehabilitation homes because of his throat. But he, was, he had no command uh, situation at and all. What do we know about his performance then during the Rising itself? He probably didn't do anything at all. As a matter of fact, he hurt his thumb, his right thumb, before the Rising, so I'm not even sure he could hold, much less fire a weapon. However, one thing he did there was instructive of what the things he... He went out and he was an organizer. He'd be the one who wrote everybody's name down, said, who's here? If something happens, we have to put, have, know who was here, who was killed, who wasn't. He was the one who tried to make sure that there was some kind of a uniform way that people got fed and that sort of thing. Again, I don't think, in, in, in the book I try to show, he doesn't really... He's not a soldier. He is not a soldier, and he's not a politician. What he is is an administrative genius, and he kept showing that all the way through his life. Everything he did, he was a brilliant administrator, a brilliant organizer, and he started that in the rising. But I mean, what you're saying is it seems to imply that Collins may never, ever have shot a fire, uh, shot, fired a shot in anger. 
Well, unfortunately, he did fire a shot. And when I say he wasn't a shoulder, he proved it in the one ambush in which he was involved, and that got him killed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, David, going back to, to, to um, De Valera, because this, this is, a, this is a, an area of some controversy. His performance um, during the Rising, right, because there is this view that he had a, some sort of a nervous breakdown or whatever. So how, how did he fare up? Uh, well, to begin with, uh, he had organised brilliantly and prepared brilliantly for the Rising. He knew exactly where each of the units were to go. He was able to advise about exactly where they'd be able to find the tools they needed to uh, make loopholes and all the rest of it. He knew where the water was, he knew where the food was, he knew what stores needed to be brought in. Uh, so all of them, all of the subordinates speak about how well prepared he was for the Rising. Uh, during the course of the Rising, though, he drove himself to exhaustion because he refused to delegate. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. One is that, uh, characteristically enough of De Valera, he thought he could do the job better than anybody else. Another was uh, he lost some fairly key officers who obeyed McNeil's countermanding order. And another one, a really interesting uh, thing I found in the uh, National Library, a couple of weeks before the rising, uh, Ginger O'Connell, who was the um, chief of inspection of the volunteers, did a report on the Dublin Brigade, and he went through all the different battalions, you know, who, as to which was the was uh, the best in terms of command. He said the second battalion was the best, the first and the fourth were good, but the, by far the worst was the third battalion. Now he didn't blame De Valera for this; he he was critical of the quality of the junior officers and the NCOs. So if De Valera felt he couldn't delegate, he perhaps had very good reason. Uh, but this, uh, this is a report before the rising. That's before the rising, yeah. But the point is that this, they were the most successful unit, in fact. Well, they included the Man Street. No, uh, I think the second battalion. I think you make an argument for the second battalion and, and the actions around uh, the four courts and, and um, uh, around there. But uh, the, the most successful operation for the third battalion was the Battle of Man Street Bridge. Uh, De Valera had presumably um, okayed the positions, which were which were very excellent. Good. I mean, they were excellent, excellent positions, yeah. yeah. But it was uh, the, the, those outposts were cut off from uh, from. Boland's Bakery, so he didn't actually have anything to do with the, the, uh, the battle itself. And he was criticised later for failing to reinforce uh, the outposts, uh, Mick Malone in, in Northumberland Road and, and, and um, uh, Seamus Grace, I think, in, in, in uh, at, at Clan William House. And he was criticised afterwards for not uh, reinforcing them, uh, which is what Ned Daly did up, up around the forecourse. He reinforced the uh, outposts that were being attacked. But the reason for that was that he thought that the main assault would come on, on Boland's Bakery itself. He thought mm. that this was just a sideshow. And therefore, he, he, he thought he wanted, he wanted to conserve his troops inside the bakery. As it happens, he, he was wrong, but, you know, he, he was not yeah. uh, yeah. But, you know, people have been critical of him and his, his, uh, the, the, the way he didn't reinforce his troops. But you could say that the, the British officers, who, after all, were professionals, uh, were much worse because they insisted on troops attacking straight, straight across the bridge uh, where the rebels were well ensconced at a great field of fire. So they, they pretty much condemned their man to murder. So uh, even some of the subordinate officers who were on the same side as him during the Civil War and didn't have a political axe to grind in their memoirs said that he overdid things, he became exhausted. Joseph O'Connor, who became his second in command, said uh, that all of his orders up until the Thursday were completely correct and, and uh, seemed to be logical and everything, which clearly implies that after Thursday they weren't. So I think he drove himself to exhaustion because he refused to delegate. But overall, uh, Dick Mulcahy, in one of his many conversations that he, he, he had um, with various people involved, said uh, uh, all of the people involved in the Rising are deserving of uh, charitable um, 
interpretation of their actions, mm, because after mm, all, mm, they mm. were amateurs. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. May I just say one thing? I agree. Uh, J.J. O'Connell was a former officer in the United States Army, and uh, as a former officer in the United States Army, I can say the report like that that he, he gave might very well have had de Valera removed from his command. It, it's a very damning kind of thing. But David is a brilliant wordsmith, and if you read his book, you'll read the last sentence in the paragraph about de Valera in the Rising, and he says that one thing that Napoleon wanted in a general was to be lucky, and de Valera was lucky, and I think he was very lucky that people remembered exactly how he performed in the Rising, which may not have been the way that he actually performed in the Rising, but he was lucky that he was remembered for the way he did. So it's an excellent use of words. Oh, thank you. Mm. <laughs> too much green up here on, on this one. <laughs> uh, we we'll soon sort that out. Um, when, okay, Joe, when does Collins then begin to become a major player? I presume it's, it's when he's released from Fonga, it comes back to Ireland in 1917, right? Actually, I hate to use the, the 2017 term, but it's a process, really. Yes, he comes out of Frangach. He's made more and more a, a combination of people in Frangach with regard to the IRB. He comes back. He goes to work for Kathleen Clark in the Volunteers Fund. Next thing she does is turn over him to all the uh, people in the IRB that he didn't know. He uses them to go out and do all of the, the legwork for him to go out to all the people. Again, he picks up a great many women contacts in that kind of a way. So that's 1917. 1918 in March, they have the uh, volunteers are going to reorganize and they're going to come up with a general headquarters. And actually, he was one of the people, along with Mulcahy, who might have been considered to be the chief of staff, and they voted against him. They actually put in Mulcahy, and Mulcahy talked to Dick McKee later on, and he said, we don't know enough about Collins quite yet. We're not sure we want to turn things over to him. So then you go just a couple months down the road, you go to May 1918, you've got the conscription crisis, then you've got the German plot, and again, very, you've got to be very, very lucky. What the British did is took all of the relatively moderates and put them in jail, and they left the hard men like Collins and Brewer and, and Mulcahy and Boland in charge here. So they're all in jail. Now you come to the election in 1918. 1919, you've got, he's, he goes to the, to the Doyle. De Valera is in jail, so he breaks De Valera out of jail. And now what happens? He gets very lucky again. De Valera goes to the United States for 18 months. Let's go to you, David. You're, you're jumping ahead there uh, a bit, Joe, because I want to go back to you, David. When does De Valera first become, a, you know, when does Collins first appear on De Valera's radar? Uh, after his release from, uh, from prison in, 19, in June 1917, when he was nominated for the, uh, for the East Clare by-election. And De Valera was very reticent to run for election uh, on the boat over from Hollyhead to Dunleary. Um, Patrick McCartan, who was a senior IRB man, had been sent over to, uh, to meet the IRB prisoners who were released, and he was talking to De Valera about this thing. De Valera got a telegram from Clare telling him he was being nominated, and De Valera was very reluctant. He said, I'm a soldier, I want to keep working as a soldier, and uh, McCartan said to him, well, look, wait until you get back to Ireland and see the changed mood in the country. And then, of course, the prisoners arrive back and are completely mobbed in the streets of Dublin by this huge, enthusiastic crowd. So uh, during the election campaign, I think uh, de Valera would have, um, would have probably met Collins for the first time, I'm not sure, probably, mm -hmm. uh, in Clare. And obviously, as Joe says, um, Collins, above all else, was a superb organiser and a superb administrator. And I think de Valera recognised those talents in him and was very happy to have somebody so efficient as a subordinate. Mm. Now, at this stage, is de Valera head and shoulders like the prominent leader? Because obviously once Thomas Ashe uh, uh, dies because of the force feeding, mm. he's the only commandant left standing. Yes. Right? 
does that automatically make him leadership material, or does Dev have to work at it? Yeah, he definitely had to work at it. His, his supporters like to imply that uh, leadership was thrust onto his somewhat unwilling shoulders. Um, as it always is. As it always is. And uh, obviously, De Valera liked to feed into that by saying, oh, well, you know, I, I don't really enjoy politics. I'd much rather go back to teaching mathematics. It took him until 1973 to leave politics, so <laughs> I think you can take that with a grain of salt. Um, so he used, he, he showed considerable political skill to elbow rivals out of the way, particularly Tom Ash, in, in, even in prison. Um, Ash was his only rival for the leadership, and, and De Valera did seem to uh, outmaneuver him in prison. Uh, Ash, some of, some of the released prisoners wanted Ash to be the, uh, to be the candidate in, um, in East Clare, but uh, he told his cousin that he, he didn't want to go for it because De Valera was determined to go for it and he didn't want to cause a split. So he used his elbows. And he used his elbows again uh, when it came to the Sinn Féin convention on the 25th of October in 1917. There was three possible leaders himself, uh, Count Plunkett, who was only a potential leader in his own head, and, um, and Griffith, obviously, who'd been the leader of uh, the original Sinn Féin party. And um, th there's a, a couple of witness statements in the Bureau of Military History of, of, of people saying that uh, De Valera came round to talk to us and he said he wasn't looking for our vote, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some of the boys wanted him to be the candidate and he thought it would be a good idea. And then he took uh, Griffith out for a cup of tea and a bun uh, on O'Connell Street and said to him, if you run against me, you're going to lose. Now, I'm not sh entirely sure that that's right, because if you look at the voting figures for the executive, and, and Joe would know this, I mean, Michael Collins scraped in last onto the executive, mm -hmm. whereas Owen McNeill, who was hated by the radicals, mm -hmm. topped the poll. Mm -hmm. So if it had come down to a contest between De Valera and Griffith, I'm not entirely sure that it would be quite as clear-cut as, as people sometimes assume. But the point was, Griffith didn't regard himself as, as a leader. He would, he'd always been looking for somebody else to lead the original Sinn Féin party. Mm -hmm. And he was very impressed by De Valera. He was impressed by his skills, by his ability to bring competing factions together. And Carl Brewer said, who else but De Valera could have kept myself and Arthur Griffith working together? And of course, isn't this the point? Like, this was a movement riven, but all sorts of factions and divisions. Ooh. And that, of course, was, was to cause problems later. Yeah, it was a coalition. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was a coalition. And De Valera was acceptable to all factions. He came up with the policy compromise at the, uh, at the Ardesh that, you know, some people, Griffith still wanted a dual monarchy, others wanted a republic, and he said uh, Sinn Féin would, would seek recognition for Ireland as an independent republic, and then they could decide their form of government. So that kept everybody happy mm, for the time mm, being. Mm. Now, um, of course, uh, 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 Collins organises his release, you know, he springs him from Lincoln Jail, mm -hmm. uh, as, as is hilariously depicted in, in the Neil Jordan film. How accurate is that, by the way? I mean... Did Dev dress up as a woman? Yeah. Okay, that's true then. Yeah. He right, did, okay. it, uh, basically, what it was is they were going by. There were uh, that was uh, I don't know what the, the term is then or what it would be now, but uh, around the corner of the prison, that was where a lot of the British soldiers were courting their women, kind of thing. And it was also a place where they they met, if you can uh, uh, recall, uh, ladies of the night, if you will. And so basically, it would not have been uncommon for a, a man and a woman to be going down that street together. It probably would have been uncommon for a man and a man to be going down that street together. So it was just a, a disguise and say, here it is, and get in the, get in the car and away we go. a six-foot-plus woman. Well, that's true, too. <laughs> it's it's, it's, it's maybe, maybe not particularly believable, but, but yes, that's true. Uh, the, the, it, it was a comedy of errors. I mean, he did, he did make the impression of the key. They did send it back. The key didn't work. They had to finally send a key to him. Peter DeLockery was a, was a locksmith. He was the one who actually cut a key for him. The key did break in the lock. They had to cut it out. 
It's the kind of thing that, uh, yes, in the, in the Jordan film, they, they, that's one of the, the kind of strange areas. You wouldn't believe it if it hadn't happened. And probably if it hadn't happened, Jordan couldn't put it in the film because it's so ridiculous that nobody would believe it at all. <laughs> but he, but he was able to, that, that fantastic line, you know, you're the only man who's heard for Ireland, right, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which he must have enjoyed uh, greatly. Um, now, anyway, Dave then comes, he's, he's, he, he then goes to America, right? Uh, which leaves Colin's mind in the shop, basically. Oh, absolutely. Again, as I, as I mentioned earlier, he was very lucky. Not yeah. officially, though. Uh, not this officially. This is the thing. I mean, uh, he, he's not officially in charge of the shop, but he actually is running it. Uh, he is. Uh, Connells is not only a good organizer. Connells was very, very much at, at uh, taking away anything that he thought he could do. Uh, that is to say, he wouldn't come to the cabinet and say, I think if we have an idea, we should appoint somebody to do this. Collins would have done it, taken it upon himself and said, that's it. Maybe, maybe have gone to the cabinet later on and said, oh, by the way, I just did this. Probably he wouldn't have done that. So he was very much expanding, always expanding his, his operations, his intelligence, and everything else. Um, I, I think De Valera uh, intended to be a politician. I think Collins intended to be administrator. And I don't know how they would have gotten along way down the road or something like this. But uh, Collins always was, was trying to bring things in. And he was, in fact, he was probably running it a great deal uh, while De Valera was gone. David, like, De Valera often gets criticized, you know, for swanning off to America while the lads are doing the hard graft mm. back at home, right? But, I mean, is, is that legitimate? I mean, sure, you know, I mean... Well, he kept wanting to come home and they wouldn't let him. Now, right. whether that was because of the great work he was doing in America or because they didn't want him around, I'm not entirely sure, but on several what, occasions... What great work was he doing in America? This is the, well, the next question. I'll, I'll come on no, to that, but yeah, several, yeah. several times he wrote to Griffith and said, look, I, I really think my place is at home and all the rest of it, and Griffith and the cabinet were absolutely united, boss. You stay where you are. You're doing a great job. In terms of what he achieved in America, I mean, he failed to secure recognition of the Irish Republic, which I don't think he was ever going to get. I don't think it was, it was politically possible for any American president at the time to do. He failed to unite Irish America. There was an awful lot of um, factionalism, uh, and he had that huge row with uh, Judge Collin and, and uh, What was that John about, Boyd. essentially? Uh, it was a about who's, the, who's the boss? Okay, well, that's, that's, that's a very good, yeah, simple yeah, answer, you, right? You, 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 you can go into all sorts yes, of different things. Right. That's what it was about. But, on the other hand, he raised a great deal of money, some of which, not all of which, uh, was sent home to help the struggle here. And he, uh, he generated an awful lot of publicity for, um, for the Irish cause. I mean, you look at some of the photographs of the mass meetings uh, that were held, they're, they're absolutely extraordinary for that, for that time uh, and place. So, you know, he, 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 did, he, did do, uh, he did do good work. Now, as soon as Arthur Griffith was arrested by mistake by the British Army, uh, and then Collins becomes acting president in his place, and as soon as he hears this, de Valera is on the boat back to, back to Ireland. Right. Now... I think that's just because he felt his place was at home. He knew that there were various peace moves underway. I don't think it was just it was to do with jealousy or anything like that, but he certainly felt his place was back here. No, so he comes back. Um, what was the relationship then between the two of them when, when, when de Valera comes back then? Because then de Valera then has certain views on how the, the war is being conducted, which doesn't go down well with, with Collins. He does. Uh, again, uh, going back a little bit to the rising, I, I don't think that de Valera had a very good idea of, of military matters. I don't think he ever demonstrated that very well. But uh, he comes back, and at this point, he, he actually wanted Collins to go to America at this point, too. And Collins looked at him and said, no, uh, you know, again, uh, I don't see any reason to do this. And that was one of the great lines uh, of Collins where he said, you know, the long whore won't get rid of me that easily kind of thing, and I'm not going to go there. 
very, very much mixed messages. In, in January of 1921, he wants Collins to go to, uh, to America. In July of 1921, he won't let Collins go to London with him. And in October of 1921, he demands that Collins goes over to, to London. So Collins was, was getting all these mixed messages. Collins supported him all the way through when he was in America. He wrote him letters in April of 1920 saying the IRB supports everything you do. I think Collins supported him in... in um, uh, in cabinet, again, as David suggests, it might have been he's doing a great job, let's leave him there and I'll be just fine doing what I'm doing over here kind of thing. I, I don't know if there was any tremendous jealousy on their part. Uh, Maeve, uh, Maeve McConnell, I think was her name, I can't remember, she was on uh, Fitzgerald Street, or uh, Fitzpatrick Street rather, and she said that, that uh, Collins worshipped the ground that the devil ever walked on, which may or may not be exactly true. Collins did, even though he had that great family background, he understood he was a country boy. And he did admire people who had things that he didn't have. He admired Robert Brennan. He admired, he admired De Valera with education and all those sorts of things. I think he felt he was a good soldier. I think he was going to follow De Valera's orders. He always said, you're my chief, and that sort of thing. But there certainly had to be some kind of conflict between the two of them. There certainly had to be some uh, kind just, of... Just, just, um, just before you come in, David, on the question of De Valera's, you were saying, he, you know, not a great grasp of military matters, but he did have a very good grasp of politics, right? And, and of course, politics and military matters are intertwined. So is there an argument saying like that De Valera's view that, I mean, he's criticised for insisting that this big attack on the, um, the, the, the customs house go ahead, in which they lose, it, 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 it's seen as a disaster. But you could argue that politically it's, it's, a, it's a success, a major success, yeah, propaganda-wise. I think he was right and he was wrong about that. Uh, mm. Like his idea was if you have a big battle, pitch battle once a month in Dublin or somewhere where the international media is available, it'll make headlines around the world and all the rest of it. But part of his thinking was that he wanted to stop guerrilla warfare or, or uh, de-escalate it because he wanted fewer reprisals against the civilian population. Now, it was the reprisals against the civilian population which actually won the propaganda war for, yeah. for the Irish and any guerrilla... Uh, war. Uh, any uh, any guerrilla uh, soldier understands that. Uh, mm -hmm. Now it's very unpleasant for the civilian population, obviously, but it was mm. the it was the bad publicity about that that finally yeah. forced uh, Lloyd George's hand. I'm just interested about the um, uh, about Collins and, and De Valera's relationship and, and, and the return from America. Um, I mean, Collins, of course, had been going out to Greystones to visit the De Valera family, playing with the children. Sinead De Valera was always very fond of him and, and spoke uh, w well of him. Didn't agree with him over the treaty, obviously, but, but always acknowledged the debt. When De Valera suggested that Collins go to America, that suggestion was unanimously approved mm -hmm. by the cabinet despite Collins' deep reluctance to go. And I think that says something about his relationship with his colleagues around the table. And Joe has adverted to the fact that he was always taking stuff on himself. Other ministers would have regarded him as sticking his nose in where, where mm -hmm. he wasn't uh, concerned. But when De Valera came back, Collins looked after getting him somewhere to live. He arranged visits uh, by Sinead so he could come out. He arranged um, all of the books that De Valera kept insisting he needed. De Valera had him looking for a bloody typewriter uh, because the typewriter that was supplied for Kathleen O'Connell wasn't the same type they'd had in America. So in the middle of the War of Independence, while he's Minister for Finance, Director of Intelligence and all the rest of it, Michael Collins is looking for a typewriter. Right. For Eamon de Valera. So he's high maintenance, then. He is high maintenance. And Collins seems to have been a little bit... Um, 
irritated by De, De Valera kept going on and on and on and on and on and on and on about America and what he did in America and who he met in America and all the rest of it. And at one point, according to Ernest Blythe, who isn't necessarily a very reliable witness, uh, De Valera launched into a particular anecdote and Colin said, we've heard that one, two or three times already. We don't really need to hear it again. Thanks very much. Okay, well, let's, go, let's go on to the, 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 the perennial question, which is, you know, why did Deb stay at home for the treaty negotiations and why was Collins sent? <laughs> Who wants to go first on this? <laughs> Maybe, David, you, you go first on this. Uh, Your man's in charge. Yeah, and he made a mistake by not going. But uh, I think he had reasons. I think he had reasons for his decision. I mean, he, he was very struck by the example of Woodrow Wilson, who had gone to Paris to negotiate the Versailles Treaty and then went home and couldn't sell it to the voters in America or the Senate in America and, and through them the voters. He thought that if he stayed at home um, the delegates would have to refer back to him and that could slow the pace of negotiations if they needed to do that. He thought that he was the President of the Republic even though he was never actually officially elected President of the Republic, he was elected President of Dáil Éireann, but anyway that's another story. Uh, and he should keep that symbol untarnished by compromise. And he also seems to have felt and um, I think uh, Barton wrote, wrote about this in his witness statement. He also seemed to have felt that if the negotiations broke down, he would have an opportunity to go to London and, and rescue the fat from the fire at the last minute. So mm -hmm. he did have reasons. They were reasonable enough reasons uh, for not going. But I think it was a mistake. And even though he argued to his dying day at great length with historians that he had not made a mistake, he never made that mistake again. Right. Anytime there was negotiations to be done, particularly in London, uh, in later years, he always made sure he went himself. Yeah, so what was Collins' view of this, John? Well, first of all, I, I agree with everything that David says. I also think that, Colin, er, that the devil er did miscalculate. You know, as a mathematician, I, I can imagine him always sitting there. I think he thought that Griffith would have would have signed, perhaps would have agreed. I think Collins would have signed. I think he thought that Barton will never sign. There's no chance in the world. Besides, I'm going to ensure that by selling by sending Barton's cousin Erskine Childers with him. So I know that's the case. So he's looking at the cabinet. He's saying there's seven people counting his votes on his fingers, and he probably thought it was five to two. He thought it was Collins and and, and Griffith. When they came back, Barton has already signed, and I think he was absolutely flabbergasted when Cosgrave on the 7th of December said, yes, I'll vote for it this way. So I think he simply made the miscalculations as well, that all the way through was a mistake, but he, he kept miscalculating. Yeah, I think he miscalculated in the Doyle. I think he thought he could win that, and he probably would have if they'd have voted before they went home for Christmas. So I, I think that there's a lot of miscalculations on his part, which is really rather uncharacteristic, because I think he was a brilliant politician. I think if you're going to have somebody counting votes, you want De Valera to be the one who counted the votes. I, I think he'd be very, very good there. But uh, in terms of Collins' reaction, I, obviously he did not want to go. He begged and begged and begged not to go. Uh, he got over there and he came back, and as I said, he, he would say, I'm a good soldier, I'm trying to do my duty, I, I'm going to overcome all of my reluctance and that sort of thing. But I don't think he ever wanted to go, and I do think that he signed because he thought it was the best, the best deal that they were going to get, which is there was nothing else on, on tap. And, and then, I mean, are we any closer to, to yeah, the question, why didn't they refer back to Dublin? Well, they, they all said, even uh, Childers said, it never occurred to them to ring Dublin. Uh, now, telephone calls at that stage were a lot more difficult to make than, than they would be now. The other interesting thing is that on the night the treaty was signed, De Valera had, had gone off down the west. He was down in Limerick uh, inspecting troops, which seems bizarre. At, you know, <laughs> but, um, the final cabinet meeting before they signed the treaty, the 3rd of December, went on all day. It was utterly chaotic, and they all went away, apparently went away with different ideas about what, what had been agreed and what were they, allowed, they were allowed to do. Now, the minutes of the meeting uh, say that they ag everybody agreed that they could not uh, sign a treaty which contained the oath unless amended, which implied that if the oath was amended, 
that they could sign and they had plenipotentiary powers, they were entitled, and de Valera acknowledged this later, they were entitled to sign any treaty that they agreed and then bring it back to the Dáil for approval or rejection. So I think there was a lot of confusion. Um, the communications channels weren't what one would expect. And the other thing about making phone calls um, is that there would have been people listening in at several points along the line, so they, they yeah. didn't really trust that. And that's why they had um, couriers like Sean McBride going back and forwards across the RSC almost on a daily basis to bring documents back. So you're saying there was, some, there was just confusion on this point? Yeah, yeah right. I think so. Now, my next, by the way, I just look at the time here, guys. So if, if anybody wants to get in, uh, yeah, I think maybe we'll just start taking questions. Yeah, is there, is there, there's a radio mic here if you'd use it so we can, we can just hear what you're, you have to say. I meant to ask this question near the beginning. Did nobody do DNA tests on the De Valera family to see to whom were they related? I'm asking the question as the voluntary administrator of a DNA project with over 30 done. And I found a guy in America with the same surname and the same DNA. So I think that could be done in relation to De Valera. And the use of a telephone book doesn't go astray either, even to locate people to volunteer to do a DNA. And if I can be a bit mischievous, Mr. Ooh. Collins seemed to spend a lot of time in houses occupied by single ladies. <laughs> 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 and maybe their offspring might be tested also. <laughs> um. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, that, that would obviously be a matter for the De Valera family or, or any of them that wanted to pursue it. The problem is that um, nobody's been able to identify the family in Spain that Vivian is supposed to have come from. They were never able to identify where in Mexico. or in Mexico or in Cuba or anywhere else. So they're never able to identify a link. Now, uh, Terry De Valera in his, in his book um, claimed that there was a particular family, uh, family in Spain identified the, the Marquez de, de Valera. Um, but in, in, de, in Eamon de Valera's papers, there's a note about that family and saying the president does not believe he is related to these people because the dates don't match up. So mm. um, I, I, I don't know how, how much value a DNA, you know more than me, I don't know how much value a DNA test would have if you didn't have the other side of the family to... No, on Hales, uh, Hales, the same surname, you could get the same results. Just, just use the mic there, sorry, yeah. yeah. Just, just repeat that, sorry, because we can't, the rest of the room can't hear you. Just give us that again, yeah. Yeah, there's a male DNA test, and if you get the same results and you have the same surname, you can say that you are related, but you don't know exactly how many generations right. back you had a common ancestor. Mm -hmm. It might be, in my case, five generations, but it's there, mm -hmm. and you'd be able to find out, you'd be able to confirm at least which country they came from if the family had been there a long time. Mm -hmm. Right uh, may I ask, to what extent can you apply, uh, you know, Powell's famous dictum to De Valera that all political careers end in failure, bearing in mind that in, by the late 1950s, when De Valera uh, retired as Taoiseach, Ireland was a political, economic, and economic, uh, economic, social, and political uh, stagnant society. I couldn't comment on that until uh, volume two is finished. Second, second <laughs> um, I think, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting point, but you could also say that De, De Valera's political career appeared to have ended in fa failure in 1922 or 1923, when he was defeated and he came back from that. Um, the, uh, and then he went on to, you know, the, the economic war, the constitution, neutrality during uh, World War II, all of which were very significant achievements. 
Um, and certainly what you say about the, uh, about the 1950s is true. What's interesting about the 1950s is all of the governments, and the, the governments alternated between the inter-party and, and Fianna Fáil administrations, and they were all useless. So, there you go. Okay, I, Dave, I just want to get in one question here, and I'll, I'll go to you then, right? Because I'm, I'm just looking at the time here, right? And I want to just throw this into the mix, uh, a counterfactual question. You know, what would have happened had Colin survived in terms of uh, the, either the, the, the differences or the similarities with, with de Valera's subsequent policies? David. Uh, well, it's impossible to say. I mean, I think people sometimes forget that uh, Collins was quite a conservative man. Um, for instance, in uh, September or October 1921, I think, while the talks were going on, he um, got the Cabinet to agree that any proposal for spending money uh, would have to be approved by the Department of Finance first, and that sort of established Treasury control or Department of Finance control over all government spending, which... Um, Many people would... would uh, so you suggest, David, then, is Michael Collins <laughs> was responsible for our economic, subsequent economic stagnation, not de Valera? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not, but I'm saying that uh, he had that, uh, you know, he had at the time a, a, um, that sort of British Treasury mm, Gladstonian mm. view of, of public expenditure. So people sometimes project, on, or oftentimes project onto Collins wishes well, hopes. whatever you're having yourself yeah basically. absolutely yeah, yeah. and there, there's really no way of of knowing how he would have uh, how he would have acted joe what, what's your view on that i, I uh, first of all i definitely agree there's no way to tell i, th I think that collins uh, if you take a look at his his um the, the period between the treaty in january of 1922 and then his death in august of 1922 it can be a very good argument i, I went with which i would agree that he turned himself into a dictator during those periods of times so i think he really did everything on his own he resigned in july he resigned his position as the chairman of the provisional government and then two days later he, he wrote to the cabinet saying oh by the way you better appoint me chief of staff and that sort of thing so everything was always catching up to where he was he would write suggestions to the cabinet say i suggest very strongly you do this which of course they did that it means it was already done yes yeah. yeah. and then they would get write letters back do you think we should do this and he'd say yes or no so i, I think that it clearly if you define a dictator somebody who who uh, acts with absolute control. He did uh, five times during that period. He prorogued Parliament or any kind of a, of a meeting of Parliament or pan, uh, the Doyle or anything else. It actually didn't meet again until the 9th September after he was dead. So I think that he would just have had... Be a, just to just emphasize that, Civil War starts in June 1922. Mm -hmm. The Doyle elected just before the Civil War broke out doesn't actually meet until September. And I mean, was, people forget this, you know. And that, it, was, it, was continu yeah. it, was, it was scheduled to meet, and then he would prorogue it. It was scheduled to meet, and, and so it didn't actually meet for five times until you get into September. So he very much was acting on his own, own uh, prerogative there during that whole period of time. He would have had to change that, because if he had lived, uh, he would have come back to the cabinet and said, okay, now reappoint me as, as the head of the chairman of the provisional government. But he had a strong cabinet in, in many ways. He did have Cosgrave, he did have uh, Blythe, he did have O'Higgins, he did have Hogan. He had other people who had definitely different ideas about it. He was trading guns with the North. He was trading, trading guns with the anti-treaty uh, uh, forces to try and arm the North. He was paying teachers in the North. He was uh, uh, kidnapping people to use as hostages in the North. None of those things would have gone after, after he, uh, if he had gone forward. So it's difficult. No, it's impossible to tell, as David says. It's impossible to tell where it would have gone, but he would have had to have made changes. But one thing that might have happened is the Civil War might have ended a lot sooner. It would have. And if it had ended sooner, it would have ended probably without all of the, the atrocities and the executions and yeah. all the various things which carried on for so many years thereafter. Yeah. So, Dave, do you want to come in now? Yeah. Just, just a quick question. Um, 
the uh, Tim Pat Coogan's claim in his book on Deb was that the Civil War would have been a much truncated affair, a uh, much smaller affair had it not been for, I think his word were, the, the considerable weight lent to the anti-treaty side by Deb. So I'm just wondering, particularly a question for David McCullough, would he agree with Tim Pat Coogan's assessment there? Yes, is the short answer. Um, I mean, I think there was lots of people that joined the anti-treaty side that wouldn't have if it hadn't been for De Valera. I think Boland is, is, is probably the, the, mm. the prime example, but there were plenty of others. Uh, there would have been a civil war. Um, Rory O'Connor, I think, would have, been, would have opposed the treaty in arms, uh, as would others, but I think it would have been shorter and uh, uh, less intense if it hadn't been for De Valera. Which is not to say that he's, you know, pr people sometimes blame De Valera for the Civil War. I think there's lots of blame to spread around. Mm -hmm. He has his share, as do others. And we'll be, we'll be doing plenty of commemorating that now in the next few Indeed. years. Andrew else, yeah, this, and, and then here, this gentleman here, yeah. I was brought up on rather scurrilous stories that Dev's father was, in fact, Irish. In one case, Anglo-Irish. I've had two completely different series put to me by different people. Do the dates of his birth in America allow for that possibility that no. she'd been sent away to acquire yeah. no. cover okay no his mother i mean there's a record of his mother arriving in new york in 1879 and there's his birth certificate from uh, october 1881 so unless you're he was an elephant this gentleman here and then sorry just a very simple question was there any communication between uh, de valera and collins after the outbreak of the civil war Ooh, that's a good one. Oh, After the outbreak. Um, pr probably not directly, because remember, De, De Valera went to the, uh, uh, the uh, anti-treaty uh, garrison, if you will, on O'Connell Street, and then that was, when that was taken over, De Valera went to the south, and I would not imagine there was any direct contact. Uh, Collins was, uh, again, he was very much somebody who didn't want to make his decisions until he had to. He, he, tried to keep in touch with everybody. He was dealing with, uh, he was dealing with Rory O'Connor uh, all the way up to the time when they, they attacked the four courts. So there may very well have been some back-channel communications, but to my knowledge, they never met after that time. No, David, is, is, is Debra irrelevant during the Civil War, essentially? Once the shooting starts. Once the shooting starts. Uh, well, up to a point. I mean, he didn't. Ha he he's had that famous line about um, watching events behind a pane of glass. Uh, mm -hmm. But he did still have some influence, and mm -hmm. he was sometimes listened to by the anti-treaty uh, side. Um, and uh, he drafted a message to the Count Corlo of the Dáil, uh, threatening to have um, TD shot who'd voted for the, the uh, public order legislation. Um, so he had his, his fingerprints were, were a little bit more on, on that side of things than is sometimes thought. And the reason for that was um, he was so distraught by the uh, uh, execution of Erskine Childers that so he kind of blew hot and cold during the Civil War. Yeah, gentleman here. Thanks. Uh, if we just take it to the present, Doyle, because I'm always struck by the intensity of the exchanges by Michal Martin and Jerry Adams. And obviously there is a debate between Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin for the political space which is going to be available for them at the next election. But is Michal Martin really, because he talks about true republicanism and Fianna Fáil as the Republican Party. So presumably this all goes back to the formation and the split in the mid-twenties. Mm. And he would see Fianna Fáil, understandably, as the inheritors of what De Valera set out for what modern republicanism is supposed to be about. Um, yeah, uh, 
the split between Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin was um, quite bitter. And um, even though de Valera tried to keep the IRA and Sinn Féin on side uh, to a certain extent, people like Mary McSweeney very quickly felt that he had, uh, he had betrayed them. But um, yeah, de Valera always, obviously de Valera, de Valera always thought that whatever he did was the true Republican path and anybody who disagreed with him was, was wrong. And uh, nice to see that his uh, successors have uh, inherited that view. <laughs> Anybody else? I just want to go to maybe with a final question here. One of the problems with this particular setup is that your book goes on for another 10 years beyond mm -hmm. where your character is already dead, right? But I, I, and, and, and we do look forward to your, your, your second volume, David. But, and, and this is jumping ahead a little bit. I presume you've covered this bit already in your writing. You said you're stuck in the 30s I somewhere. Assume, I would assume nothing. Uh, no, it's just that in the 30s, De Valera very successfully operates the treaty settlement. Yes. He, he expands the whole, every constitution loophole going yeah. until effectively, you know, according to his, the 37 constitution, we are a republic in all but name. So in a way that vindicated Collins' view. Did, did, did De Valera ever admit this to anybody else or even to himself in a, in a, in a quiet moment, do you uh, think? Well, he said it in the Shannon. Uh, so he said, did acknowledge he that? He said, well, he didn't quite say that uh, Michael Collins was right all along, uh, as you can imagine, but he did say that uh, progress had been made that I never thought possible. So right. that was as close as he would come to um, admitting that he was wrong. But, you know, th things change. Um, he, I mean, the mistake I think he made in 1921-22 in was to assume that the status that Ireland gained under the treaty was immutable and would never change, right. but that partition would. And I mean, everybody on both sides of, of the treaty debate seemed to think that partition would very quickly uh, crumble away because of the Boundary Commission, because of economic factors. And actually, it turned well, out- they all the got that one wrong. Yeah, I mean, they did, yeah. It's back to haunt us, yes, you know, breaks the thing. But the striking thing about it is, I mean, uh, you know, it's often pointed out that the, the North played, played very little role in the treaty debates. Nobody from extreme Republican to uh, moderate, th thought it was an issue because they thought the Boundary Commission would actually work. Maybe finish off on this point, Joe, because you can bring Collins into this one, is the whole attitude to, to, to Northern Ireland. I mean, uh, do you think if Collins had survived, it would have made any difference to that question? There's an easy question for you now, <laughs> to finish off with. Uh, it, it, Collins always said, you never let the right hand know what the left hand is doing kind of a thing. So when I think of that, or whenever I read that, I think of that, I think there's a Hindu god called Vishnu or something has 15 different arms because Collins was telling everybody all kinds of different sorts of things. He was, in fact, trading weapons in the, with the people in the forecourt saying, go take these up there. An extraordinarily kind of a thing. And nobody ever, nobody from the forecourts ever turned him into the British or anything else. He was paying teachers. Not the up only there. person in the Irish government to do well, such a thing. Well, he might have done such <laughs> Allegedly. Uh, he, he was doing all these sorts of things, which uh, the cabinet didn't know anything about this and, and, and that sort of thing. I, I think that Collins would have had to make a change. I, I really absolutely do. I don't think he could have continued to do that. I do think he believed in the Boundary Commission. He always, in public, would say this is a stepping stone, that uh, this is a freedom to achieve freedom. In private, he always said, we're going to work the treaty. Uh, again, it comes up very problematically in the, in the uh, uh, mutiny of 1924, when they're starting to, to cut back the uh, Free State Army. They're not only throwing people out because they're cutting it back, but they, the, the mutiny is a part saying, you know, Collins told us we were going to proceed from here. Who knows? He might yeah, very well yeah. have. He probably would have told everybody whatever they wanted to. So I think he would have had to change because I don't think the cabinet, the Doyle, or the people would have gone along with it. Okay. 
Now listen, I'm going, to, I'm going to wrap things up here because I don't want to keep this discussion going because then some of you people mightn't buy the books, right? This is the thing, you know. <laughs> you have to remember why we're all here. Uh, so I'd just like to thank our, our, our two speakers here, um, uh, Joe Connell, uh, again, just uh, Michael Collins, Dublin 1916 to 22, published by Worldwide Books, and David McCullough, Devil Era, Volume 1, Rise, 1882 to 1932. I'd also like to thank uh, you, the audience, particularly those people who contributed to the discussion, and I'd like to thank the RDS uh, and the people here for putting on... Uh, a marvellous venue for us here. So thank you all very much. Thank you.